0: words taken
1: up because it shows that God has accepted us in Him. He was taken up into heaven, and He will return in the same way. And then we're going to go to Hebrews 4, and we're going to read about Him who passed through the heavens. <laughs> so from the time of His going up to the time of His coming back, He has passed through the heavens there to be not only as our King, but to be also our royal high priest. So Acts 1, verses 9 through 11, it gives our, a bit of a context to the ascension, to Christ going up into heaven. Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadily toward heaven... As he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And then we go to Hebrews chapter 4. And there's the promise of rest. Christ labored, on earth, and he entered into his rest. We follow. We labor, and we also enter into that rest. But Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today after such a long time, as it has been said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked, and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And these are the words we focus on, verse 14, 15, and 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, think of Acts 1, 9 through 9-11, who passed through the heavens, Jesus The Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So you'll see also a bit of an outline in your bulletin as well we go through these uh, three verses, 14, 15, and 16. You read Hebrews 4, there's a lot in there, but its basic point is this, it speaks of a promise for God's people of entering into the heavenly rest, entering into the rest that is yet to come. And where is that greater rest found? In Christ, that's really the point of Hebrews 4, is found in Jesus. You know the greater rest, Hebrews 4 tells us, that Joshua could not bring. He brought the people into the promised land. Yeah, but Joshua himself was not the true Savior. The promised land is not the true land of rest, but it points to one greater, that's to Jesus and the one who brings us into that rest. And so the writer exhorts the church, exhorts the covenant children of God to be diligent, to enter that rest. And he warns God's covenant children against hardening their hearts. So he's speaking not to the world, he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to believers. Don't harden your hearts. Don't disobey the word of God. I mean, the word of God is living and powerful. And that word which is living and powerful is what? Is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of your hearts. And you know, in verse 13, the fact that nothing is hidden from God's sight makes all the more pressing our need for a mediator. We need a mediator who can truly help us on our behalf. We need one to not only help us, but the one who can be there for us at all times, every moment. And that's what our high priest does. We have a great high priest. And if you look in the context of Hebrews chapter 4, really we hear the exhortation to find rest, to find our rest in Jesus the great high priest, our great high priest. And so this leads to two conclusions, verses 14, 15, 16. You'll see two phrases, let us. There's two exhortations. The first one is, let us hold fast our confession. In other words, let us hold fast to our faith. I mean, we have one who's greater. Let us hold fast to our faith. And the second thing is, let us come boldly to the throne of grace so there's two let uss there right two exhortations let's look at the first one let us hold fast you know holding fast means when you hold on to something you hold hard onto it you hold firmly onto it right whether it's uh, maybe your wallet in your hands when you're walking outside you hold firmly you hold you say now hold Christ Right? Mind you, Christ holds us, but he also calls us to respond and, and hold him. Right? Hold fast. And that's, the, that's what we find in verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. So yeah, we're to set our hearts, not on the material stuff of this world. All that stuff is going to get burned up. But we're to set our hearts on the, on the heavenly rest. How? By holding fast our confession, firmly holding to the faith to Christ, you know what that means for the church. What the author is saying here to the to the readers to the believers, he's saying that means we're going to be stepping into spiritual warfare. We're going to be stepping into a spiritual battle against the relentless attacks of the threefold enemy. That's the world, our sinful desires, and the devil. What he's saying is, don't give in to them. Be diligent to enter into the rest. What he's saying is, yeah, life for the Christian is not easy. It's not easy. It means denying self. It means dying to our pride. Dying to self by the power of the Spirit. It means taking up the cross. Taking up the cross means willing to be crucified to our old self. And it means following Christ, denying self, taking up the cross, and following Jesus. It's a life of daily, you could say daily repentance, and of trusting in Christ. That's the labor that the church is called to. That's the labor. That's the hard work. And we need a high priest, and we have one. That's the good news. He ascended to heaven, we have one. And that leads us to two motivations. Where do we find our motivation to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, to keep our eyes fixed on the heavenly reward, on the heavenly rest? Where do we find a motivation to keep on going, to hold fast the confession? Well, there's two motivations here in verses 14 and 15. The first one we find in verse 14. Seeing them, we have, seeing them that we have a great high priest who has passed where? Through the heavens, far above all principalities and powers. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. You know, you compare that to the priesthood of the Old Testament. This makes him a greater priest than the priesthood of Aaron in the Old Testament. Remember the high priest in the Old Testament? He entered to the most holy place in the tabernacle only once a year, just once, once a year. And there, what did he do? He sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. You could say on the throne and the most holy place on the mercy seat. For what purpose? First of all, to atone for his own sins. He himself was a sinner. And then to atone for the sins of the people. Notice he stood. He stood. The the work was not yet done. It was not yet accomplished. And he only stood briefly for a few moments, once a year. Your heavenly high priest, Christ, this one has passed Through the heavens. He accomplished the labor. He he accomplished the work that God gave him to do on our behalf for our salvation. He accomplished it. He fulfilled it on our behalf. And in his ascending into heaven, he, our great high priest, has now entered, you could say, his rest. Sitting, not standing, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. It's finished, it's complete, all the work, all the labor that God had him do on our behalf. Our flesh and blood. Think about it this way. Our own very flesh and blood, Christ in his flesh and blood, ascended into heaven, into the very presence of God. And he's there Always, at all times, without a moment's break. In Him, yeah, you know, he, he went before us. He is one who passed through the heavens. In Him, we die. In Him, we are raised, We are resurrected to a new life. In Him, we are seated. We are with Him in the heavenly places. That's what his flesh and blood show. It's our flesh and blood. With scars and all, scars in his hands, the scar on his side that points to the completed, to the accomplished work of Christ in our behalf. He has gone ahead of us. We follow. That's the motivation. We don't have to pay. We don't have to merit our relationship with God. Christ did And now we follow. When Jesus ascended to heaven, what did he declare? If you look at Hebrews 2, verse 13, very beautifully, he says, Here am I. What else did he say? And the children whom God has given me. They're there with him. His people are with him. He's there representing us until he returns to bring us into that heavenly rest. Our high priest is busy. He is very busy. You talk about busy. And the beautiful thing is, you are his priority. His people are his priority. He's interceding. That's what he's doing. The sacrifice has been accomplished. And now on the basis of that sacrifice, he intercedes continually not for the world, but for his people. John 17, verse 9. He's continually interceding for his elect, for those whom, all whom the Father has given to him, every last one of them. His weary people, his embattled people, his people who face all kinds of temptations, all kinds of temptations to harden their hearts, to disobey. He's there interceding on their behalf. He's pleading our cause with the Father, and he's doing so on the basis. He shows his his scarred hands before God, the Heavenly Father. He shows the scars on his hands. He shows this pierced side. Look what I've accomplished for all those whom you have given me. Hebrews 7.25, it's a great verse. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. <clears throat> what a great encouragement. He never stops interceding. Our flesh and blood. Certainly he was God, but he was also truly human. Flesh and blood, bones, scars, interceding, always interceding, always praying for his people seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Who is he? Jesus, the Son of God. You notice here, Jesus, human, truly man, with a body, with bones, with blood, even in his resurrected state. Jesus, but also the Son of God, truly divine, fully human, fully divine, powerful, but also, there's no one that can show sympathy like he does. He shows sympathy. He shows empathy for his people. That's the first incentive, right? He went before us in our place, and now he says, the way is open, you follow. Follow. Of course, we're going to see that. He gives the resources, too. He gives the grace and the <clears throat> mercy as we see in verse 16 a little later. But that's the one incentive. The other incentive, the other motivation to hold firmly to the faith we profess is seen in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Or to put it positively, we have a high priest who sympathizes, who can sympathize with us. He's the one who comes down to our level. What king does that? Every king on earth would say, you have to come to me, right? Yeah, I'm not going to come to you. But this Christ, he comes to us on our level by his spirit that he poured out in the church as our, to be our advocate. The spirit's our advocate. He's there with us. He's not left us as orphans. He descends to our level. He's not removed yet. He surpassed, he has passed through the heavens But he's not removed from our situation. He's not removed from our struggles, our trials, our testing and sin. The word sympathy here is a very strong word. It's only used two times in the Bible, this particular word, and those two times are only in the book of Hebrews. It means to suffer alongside. You know, sometimes we think, nobody understands my situation. And nobody gets it. He does. He suffers alongside. He's touched with the feeling of. He feels for. He's human. He's man. He's flesh and blood. He's not just divine, he's flesh and blood. He's not aloof. Sometimes we're aloof from others. That's not him. He's aloof. He's not aloof from your trials and temptations. He's not cold. He's not distant. He's not disinterested in whatever you may be going through. And that could be many things. Verse 15 says that he sympathizes with what? He sympathizes with how great we are? No, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. What an admission. We need to come before our great high priest. I am weak. I am helpless. I am tempted. I fall into sin. I need a, a high priest who gets down on my level, who goes, who picks me up, washes me, and cleanses me, and clothes me. And That's the kind of high priest I need. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, our burdens, our struggles, our temptations. How do we know that he's that kind of high priest? How do we know that? Verse 15 says, he himself was tempted. He knows exactly what you and I go through. He knows. The fact that he was tempted is an assurance to you and me that he is able to help us in whatever temptation. Yeah, but... Pastor, you don't know what temptations I'm going through. Maybe not. And maybe it's intense. Maybe it's horrifying. But he does. I can point you to him. He understands. Verse 15. In all points, notice that not in some points, in all points, tempted as we are, but of course yet without sin. He's truly divine at the same time. Yes, like us. He's like us. He's human. Like us. In every way. In every respect. He went through it. He knows it. He understands fully. Boy, what a teaching this is for us, eh? How we ought to relate to one another in the same way. On the level. On the level of. With, with others bearing the burdens. He went through it. He knows. He understands fully. He himself experiences weaknesses and temptation. Think of the things that he went through far more intense than any of us could ever go through. Tempted by Satan in the wilderness. 40 days, 40 nights. Hungry, alone, lonely. He was weary. Uh, and then you read through the gospel accounts: disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And then remember, after the miracle of the bread, he taught, and everybody left him, deserted him. And then he—it's almost like in a, in, he's almost weeping. And he turns to his twelve disciples. He says, "Are you going to leave me too?" Hard hardships. He went through it. And then, of course, on the cross, forsaken, abandoned, not by God. I mean, abandoned by God the Father, first of all, but also rejected by the world. No one has experienced that kind of aloneness, that kind of rejection, that kind of abandonment as Christ himself. And he did it not because he was sinful, but because he came to to pay the full price for your sin. What love. But look what he had to endure in all points, tempted as we are, yet without sin. True, it was not possible for him to sin. He's truly God. But at the same time, his temptations were not just a mock temptation. They were real. They were genuine. In every way like ours, And without falling to sin, he felt the the intensity, the weight, being the sinless one. Of course, he felt the force of the temptations way more than what we ever do. If you read Hebrews 5 or 7, it speaks of how he, well, during his days on earth, he offered offered up prayers and supplications to God. It says, with vehement cries and tears. Vehement. I mean, that's, that's, that's language that approaches that. We, we can never have that kind of depth, uh, depth as He experienced it. We'll never be able to understand the depth and the force of the temptations Christ endured. And that was for our sake. He did it. You think of the love of our, our royal high priest, He understands what we go through. And the beautiful thing is, He says, Okay, now I provide a way of escape. On top of that, if you look at Hebrews 2.18, the Bible says, being tempted, he is able to aid us when we are tempted. He gets right alongside. We can share it with him. And he's there to, to suffer alongside, but also to help us overcome, because he's the one who overcame sin and Satan, and to give us a way of escape. He knows, this is the beautiful thing about his praying. He knows exactly what to pray for every individual believer. He knows exactly what to pray before the Father, at what time, and perfectly. You talk about an encouraging note. That's it right there. He's there as our great high priest. You know... He continually presents his finished sacrifice on the cross before the Father. Again, the scars in his hands and on his pierced side is the, is, the, uh, is the promise that we have for God forgiving us all our sins and for God fully accepting us in him. It's the scars in his hands right? that, that were won through his hard-fought battle over sin and Satan. If anyone says sins, says 1 John 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What does that mean? We're not righteous. But we have the righteous one, and through faith in him, we also receive his righteousness. We are declared righteous in him. He himself, it says, is a propitiation for our sins. He answers. He's the one who answers all the charges brought against you. Whether those charges come from Satan or from the breaking of the law, the Ten Commandments we read this morning, or from our sinful conscience. All these three things will cry out, Guilty! Satan says, You're guilty! The Ten Commandments says, You're guilty! Our conscience cries out, Guilty! And yet, He would have us look to him. He says, don't look at yourself. Look at Christ by faith. And God accepts you, fully accepts you through uh, on the ground of Christ himself, his blood, his righteousness. That's what covers us. That's how God sees us in Christ. He sees us as perfect, just as we have never sinned. You have a great high priest. Don't harden your hearts. This will be terrible. Don't harden your hearts. Don't close your heart to him. Don't disobey. He gets alongside our great high priest. You know, he's praying. He's interceding. You know what else he's doing? He's also preparing a place Right, He's promised the the rest to come. In the meantime, he's preparing a place for that rest, having gone ahead of us. Think of one like one who immigrates from another country, comes here, works, gets a place, and then he calls his family and he says, you know, everything's ready now. You come. You come from your country. Come here. Come home. That's what Christ is doing. We're here on earth, and at one point he's going to say, everything's ready now. Come home. That's why Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, the night he was arrested, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that, you, that where I am, there you may be also. Incentives. Incentives. Motivations. He went before us, we follow. And he's also tempted like we were, and therefore he's able to aid us. He'll bring us through. He's the one who'll bring us through, but also be diligent to enter into that rest. Don't look at how you're clinging, (laughs) because if you look at how you're clinging, you're not necessarily looking at Christ. If you're driving your car, for example, in a terrible ice storm, the roads are, 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 I mean, the icy conditions and the roads are very dangerous. You don't look out how, how you are holding on to your steering wheel, right? Am I, am I clinging hard enough? I, should I be holding this center or should I be going like this or should I be going like this? Am I doing a good enough job? No. You keep your eye on the road, you keep your eye on your destination. Stay the course. Likewise, our hardships and temptations. Don't I mean, don't, don't look at that primarily, but look to Christ in all that. Keep your eye on the way. Keep your eye on the on the destination, on the rest to come. You know, in all of this, Christ is so good. We have a great high priest. He even gives us a resource. I mean, we have the motivations. And you don't feel motivated enough, he's also give you a resource. And that's prayer. Just just praying. Praying. Verse 16 let us come boldly to the throne of grace. There's a second one. By the way, you know, the only way we can hold fast to our confession is if we come boldly to the throne of grace. That's necessary. Reliance, dependence, trust, trusting on Him, praying. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The real simple words there is draw near to God, praying. Why is it such a long sentence here? Because the Lord wants to see something of the richness of what it means to come into the very presence of God. Yeah, our flesh and blood is there. If our flesh and blood is there, that means we're there in the very presence of God. We don't go there ourselves, but we're there in him, our flesh and blood. And, and it just brings out of the richness of that. Prayer is such a rich way of, of access to God. Two things here. Note the apostle exhorts us to approach God's throne of grace confidently or boldly. You know, there's a difference between presumption and boldness. Presumption says, you know, I'm really quite okay. I deserve it. I mean, why wouldn't He answer my prayer? That's presumption. But boldness is being assured that God hears me, not because of who I am. There's nothing in me. He hears me because of the perfect righteousness. Of Christ, That's what he looks at. And therefore I may come boldly to the throne of grace. I may come trusting. I don't need to be afraid. Many Christians struggle in their relationship with God, especially when it comes to praying. They're afraid, I think, because of verse 13. Oh, all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. True, what does God see in us? Corruption, pride, arrogance, rebellion, sin. That's us. And we, we see it in ourselves, don't we? At least if we have the grace of God, we do. And we say, I can't pray. How do I come boldly? This is who I am. Remember what his throne is. His throne is a throne of what? Grace. And grace, a good way to remember grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches to you at Christ's expense. God's riches, G-R-A-C-E, at Christ's expense. That's the only way we become rich. Rich in blessings, spiritual blessings. It's free. He freely offers it. Without our deserving it. False and as the song layer says, false and full of sin I am. The only condition for grace is what? Is our willingness to receive it. Right? Our willingness to receive it. And the beautiful thing is, God's grace is able to soften a hardened heart. God's grace is able to bring obedience to a life of disobedience. It's all of grace. Christ earned it. Christ merited it. We look to him. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as Hebrews 4, verse 7. That's the first thing, right? The the throne of grace. The second thing is, he exhorts us to come to the throne of grace so that what? We may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. And sometimes that need goes as deep as a child of God. We're talking about the child of God now. Sometimes a child of God says, I just can't pray. I feel like there's nothing in here. I feel hardness in my heart. I feel like I have no feeling. Christ has feeling for you. You can pray. 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 There's help for you. Give your hardness of heart to him. Give your sins over to him. There's grace. I love Romans 8, 26, 27. Christ helps us to pray, but who else does? The Holy Spirit. It says in Romans 8, 26, 27, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, the Spirit, what does he do? Sometimes we just mumble and mutter and we don't know what to say. And so the Spirit graciously interprets our prayers. And what does he do? He puts them into the ears our heavenly father he's he's there and we simply are called to willingly receive that grace that's that's the answer that's the resource that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need notice that there's two words here mercy and grace what's the difference well we need mercy for past failure We need grace for the present and future work. Know something else? Mercy. Mercy is to be is to be taken. Right? It's to be taken, it's to be received as given to us. But grace, (laughs) we find it. We're to find it, we're to seek it. But we find it in Christ. All grace. His grace according to our needs. Are you needy? I trust we can all confess we are very needy. We need somebody at our side. That's Christ. He did all the work. Trust in his finished work. And he's there praying for you. His flesh and blood. God sincerely offers his grace in Jesus. And you know, you know. Sometimes I hear people say, "You know, the longer I become a Christian, the more I see the rebellion inside of me, the sin and corruption." Why is that? Well, this is part of God's grace, right? You come to see who you really are, but you come to also see the greatness of God's love and grace in Christ Jesus, which is even bigger yet. Our sin is great, but our high priest is even greater. Our sins, though they are many, what's the songwriter say? His mercy is more. Remember that. Don't despair. Don't despair. There's grace for sinners at the throne. Remember Paul? Paul, the greatest missionary, what did he say? He, he said, I couldn't, he couldn't understand himself. He says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't do, I should be doing. And what did he say finally? Oh, wretched man that I am. He wasn't just saying it, he meant it. Like he, he says, You talk about a wretched man, a terrible man, look at me. But then in the next vein, he says, But I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the, only, he's the only answer, He's the only resource. Go to Him. Do you want this rest? Is true rest? Is, Is your soul very noisy? Go to him. Trust him. We have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Hold fast your confession by boldly coming to the throne of grace. Isn't this the same Christ who said, Come unto me, you who labor, and and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's his promise. Amen.